Oh, you're still muted? Start again. Okay. Now the official thumb is, is proper. Okay. I was saying while it was muted that uh, I still have migraine level headaches all day long, all night long, last night. So I'm hanging in there the best I can. I need to go back to see the, uh, eventually see the neurologist and, and come up with some kind of remedy that so far has eluded everybody. Uh, I know I said back on September 24th, but obviously I have very great hope that we go in Rosh Hashanah on the 15th through the 18th, the Feast Day of Trumpets, and we, we're out of here. But uh, if not, then I'm back on September 24th. This is a continuation of lecture number 201 on August 27, 2023. So if you're joining us, you missed the first part of this, and, and I will be re- regurgitating much of what I said last uh last lecture on the 27th, 2023, number 201. So I need to add that in there because people uh, get confused by me easily. I, I also left the, the hedge, the kiss, the sop, and the cup on the board because I'm going to make the point as best I can that there's a relationship between those four. Uh, and everything in the Bible is... What's that? No, no, I'm good. I don't know what that was about, but I'll find out later. Yeah, something that I've omitted that Lori knew. Okay, so where am I? Yeah, the, the sop, the cup, the kiss, and the heads, not necessarily in that order, are, are intimately, everything in the Bible is intimately connected. And so you know that these are going to be, and two of them are done by Christ, and two of them are done by Satan. So that be, even makes them most, most interesting. Uh, you have to ask why why that s- symmetry is there. September 10th, 2023, lecture discussion number 202 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 14, and Genesis 15. Notice that I decided to add Melchizedek to the list. Genesis 14 is the substrate. It's the foundation. It's the concrete slab of Genesis 15. That had to be laid down first. And again, you know my position that Christ is Melchizedek, Hebrews 7. Genesis 15 is the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, so obviously Christ would be there. Obviously he would be there because it's a belief system, it's by faith, it's by grace, and that is, of course, the message of Christ. Okay, in lecture 201, August 27, 2023, I'm going to say it again so people can can find it. My objective was to introduce uh, Jeremiah 19, specifically Jeremiah 19.5, into the almost 500-year food fight that is Calvinism and Arminianism. And actually, this goes back to Augustine of Hippo, which is 1,600 years ago. And therefore, we should always temper our expectations here. It's been going on a long time. And it is doubtful that resolution will ever occur prior to the rapture, which I'm hoping is September the 15th through the 18th. If not, then then we'll go for Yom Kippur and then we'll go for uh, Sukkot. So it's, it's doubtful that... Uh, Resolution will ever be, be done until Christ solves it. And that, that of course, the, the rapture of the, of the church is the abduction of the bride, Matthew 25, 6, 25, 13, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. He's coming to get his church and pull us out. It's not to do us any favors, but he is setting this, the floor for the tribulational period. I've been watching the Ukraine-Russian war with great interest to see how that's going. I expect at some point Russia to form that that coalition that attacks Israel in Ezekiel 38. So I'm always interested in what they're doing. Russia admitted, uh, at least one high-ranking general admitted the, recently, that the reason that they attacked the Ukraine was so that they would set up the stage to take Europe. They're interested in attacking and taking territory, which puts them right in the middle of Ezekiel 38. If they fail in the Ukraine, they will, they will not succeed in getting Europe. That means they will go south into the Middle East. And get the oil there, or at least get get control as much oil they can, which they almost already have done. I say, okay, but all that aside, I'm going to endeavor to persevere with regard to uh, this 1,600-year fight, uh, and I, I'm disregarding the futility of the venture. I, like I said, I don't convince people of anything. I never have been able to. I don't ever expect to be able to especially on this thing. And now that I'm on the precipice of my dotage, I've aged out of the fight. I don't have the intensity. 
I don't have the will, and I don't have the time. I'm running out of time, I know it. The old adage that, that people have said for generations, I have less time in front of me than I did behind me. And you recognize that as you get to be my age, and I know a lot of you are in my age group. And again, my infirmities are engulfing my cognition, so I have this extra sense of urgency. And I have purposely designed my lectures to include evidences that have been traditionally excluded. I, I want to know how many times when you're talking about uh, Calvinism and Arminianism, did they bring up the hedge, the kiss, the kiss, the sop, and the cup? I'm trying to do things that no one else, and the people have done it. I, I haven't done anything original. But I'm trying to do things that have been usually neglected, traditionally excluded, if not intentionally neglected. And obviously, based on Lecture 201, I believe that Jeremiah 19 is one such passage. I know they debate it, but they don't really debate it. And another passage that needs to be right side by side with Jeremiah 19 is the ashes of the red heifer, the laws of the purification, Numbers 19. So Numbers 19 and, and Jeremiah 19 should also be attached to each other. Whenever you study one, study the other. Whenever you present one, present the other. And I tend to do that as well. Okay. I barely introduced Jeremiah 19 into the fray last time. Barely got it. And today we're, we're going to revisit much of it, not all of it, and certainly not the same stuff as much as I can avoid it, but I still have to bring some of those issues in here. And we're going to revisit the theological implications of Jeremiah 19, 4, 4 through 10. And that's the sign of the broken pottery flask. So I have broken pottery, and we know who the potter is. So the potter has broken pottery, and he has a sign of the broken pottery flask. And that's what Jeremiah 19 eventually is, is assigned to. And immediately everyone should leap towards the six water pots uh, of stone, John 2, 1 through 10. The water pots that Christ had filled with water. He had, he had some water pots, and he's going to fill them with water, right? You remember the story that's at the wedding? His mother comes to him and says, do something. And he says, what is, what is your concern to me? All of that's very, very important. And this is the first public supernatural act of the Lord God Almighty Jesus Christ. God is going to do something with water pots, stone water pots. So it's one of his, it's his first public act. And in my uh, very humble position is that the six water pots were set aside and not being filled with water and couldn't be filled with water because they were broken, which assigns them now to Jeremiah 19. The potter would need to restore them before they could be filled with a good wine, John 2.10. Matthew 26, 26-28. The good wine, of course, is what? It is a symbol of what? Of who? It is a symbol of the blood of Christ. So they had to be restored before the blood of Christ could go into them. And 1 Corinthians 15, 50-54 describes the corruption of Isaiah 49 pottery being changed to immortality. Let me say that again. 1 Corinthians 15-54 through 50, 50 through describes a bunch of broken pottery raptured up, abducted by Christ. Before it can be changed, it has to be yeah, and before it can put on immortality and, and incorruption, it has to, the corruption and the mortality has to be fixed. And I'm saying to you, at least I'm trying to say to you, uh, that that's what's going on at the uh, wedding, the first, uh, the first sign and the first, uh, first of seven miracles, they call that in the book of John. I hope that made sense. Let me try it again. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54 describes the corrupted, corruption, the pottery being changed to immortality. Through the blood of Christ, First John 1, 7, Hebrews 9.22. So, in other words, before our bodies can be filled with the perfect sinless blood of Christ. Let me repeat that. Before our bodies can be filled with the perfect sinless blood of the Lamb slain, the Lamb slain, Revelation 13.8, the body has to be resurrected and the body has to be restored. And the Bible calls it change. Take off the corruption, put on the incorruption. Take off the immortality, put on the mortality. I'm sorry, take off the mortality and put on the immortality. So when I see these water pots in the first miracle, I'm confident that that's what Christ is depicting there. That's one aspect of it. Now, there's lots of aspects. He's putting his blood into broken vessels. That's why I believe the vessels are broken. And again, that's why I suspect the six water pots. And by, by the, uh, I won't put by the way up there. I should, but I won't. 
I've stopped myself, so I get I get dispensational grace here. Why not three water pots? Why not four water pots? There's six water pots. So what do I do now to figure out why there's six hot water pots? I make, again, let me repeat it. I have the conclusion. I think I can fight it all the way to the end and prevail that those water pots were broken. That makes the most sense. That feeds them all into the same uh, ultimate end. Six water pots that have to be restored. When was man created? On the sixth day. Abraham had six intercessions for Sodom. Why not seven intercessions? Why not three intercessions? But no, he had six of them. Why six? You can put all those pieces together and come up with a conclusion as to whether or not the water pots were broken. The quick point for today, yea, a point already, is that so far everything that I have said is within the context of Jeremiah 19, 4 through 10, especially the lamb slain part. And speaking of the lamb slain, that's the Paschal lamb, Passover lamb, if you wish, of Exodus 12, 1 through 24. The ordinance that must be observed forever. It has to be observed forever. The Passover. Exodus 12, 24. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, John 1, 29, 136, is without reputable controversy the Passover lamb of God. Now, some will disagree, but I don't believe it's reputable. I don't believe it's controversial. He is the Passover Lamb of God and is our Passover Lamb sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. That's, where you, that's why you get the blood. That's what the purpose of the blood is. Exodus 12, 5 declares that the Passover feast lamb must be a male of the first year and is to be kept for four days. Now we're in, now we're in the books of Peter, right? How long is a day? Exodus 12.3, Exodus 12.6. Then the lamb must be killed between the two evenings. Deuteronomy 16.6. That's also Luke 23.44-46. And it's forbidden to break the bones of the Passover lamb. Exodus 12.46. Obviously, the Passover lamb of God did not have his legs broken. John 19.33. We know the legs of Christ were not broken. The Passover lamb of God, that's who he is. He's the Passover lamb of God, from God. His legs were not broken. None of his bones were broken. Why is it forbidden to break the bones of the Passover lamb of God? We know it didn't happen. We can see the relationship to Exodus 12. But do you ask why? You should ask why. Why not break the legs? What's the big deal? There's a problem off the bat. There's this omnipotent, unkillable God in the flesh up there on the cross. John 10, 17 through 18. And there are many speculations on this, conjectures on the restriction of the broken bone. Had the Romans attempted to break the bones of Christ, would they have been successful? They would not have been successful because you can't break the bones of the Passover lamb, so they would never have been successful had they attempted to do it. Christ must allow his hands to be nailed. When they're nailing his hands and nailing his feet, that's the omnipotent God, right? How do you drive a nail through omnipotence? He has to participate. And he did. Jesus must participate for that to be possible. Christ allows his side to be pierced. He does that because of what? Why does he want his side to be to be pierced? Well, it's because of Adam. Genesis 2.21. It's not from the rib of Adam. It's from the side of Adam. It is a Hebrew word that means side. It does not mean rib. It's been mistranslated for centuries. So that is why the pierced side of Christ and the pierced side of Adam. I have the first Adam and I have the last Adam, right? Obviously, Christ is making you understand when his side is pierced, you're supposed to go back to where Adam's side is pierced. By God. Notice that the side is pierced by who? When when Adam is pierced? By God. So God has to participate in his own piercing or it doesn't happen. To repeat, he is infinite, omnipotent God himself and he is in absolute control of every aspect of his crucifixion to the smallest detail, something the Romans came to understand, which is why they all went, wow, what are we up to here? What's happened here? He he forced them, as you've heard me say many times, to, to take them, he forced the Romans to take him to the skull of Goliath that David buried. 
That's what he wanted to do. Golgotha is the name of that site. It's not Golgotha. That's a uh, I don't know what the, it's not just a mispronunciation, but it's an intentional mistranslation. They they have lost the skull of Goliath, the Golgotha, Golgotha, John 19:17. His cross was directly above, resting upon the skull of Goliath. That's because he's taking care of every single little aspect that we think are little, but they're not little. None of them are little. He's taking care of every single aspect of his crucifixion. Again, the nailing of his hands and the piercing of his side are involved there, and the breaking of his legs. I submit Jesus Christ directed every aspect because that's what he would do. He's God. He's certainly not going to let us interfere with his crucifixion. And it's something I have previously enumerated many, many years ago and many, many times ago. But that's not the point for today. Hooray, no point. Uh, So, note that no one has a surprise face that this isn't the point for today. Because today is more Jeremiah 19.5 and the Passover Lamb of God. And the Passover Lamb of God contains this fantastic truth the lamb must be inspected. And what is the purpose of inspecting the lamb? Exodus 12.5 Why do you inspect the Passover lamb of God? That's Christ. But why do you do it? Because it must be found without something. What must it be found without? Without blemish. It's got to be without blemish. Exodus 12.5 First Peter 1.19 Add some more information. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish... He's even quoting Exodus 12.5. And without spot, 1 Peter 1.20, he was indeed, he, he indeed was foreordained before the foundations of the world, Revelation 13.8. Because the lamb slain is formed, or that con- concept, if you want to think of it as an idea, but it's really a purpose. The lamb slain, the lamb slain, I've got to be able to say these words now. The lamb slain, slain of or by the foundation of the earth of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, for you who through him believe in the triune God who raised him from death. That's First Peter 1.20. And again, notice what was foreknown before time. Or predestined. You want to say predestined? I'll give you the predestined. What was predestined before time? Christ's death. That's correct. That's the purpose that he talks about in Romans. He didn't predestine salvation. He predestined, predestined his purpose. Hopefully, without prompting all of you, uh, uh, hopefully without me just laying it out for you. So far, all of you guys that are listening to me today, and thank you uh, for devoting an hour of uh, your insomnia condition so that you can get some sleep. I hope you realize the connection to Jeremiah 19, 4 through 6. And again, here's Jeremiah 14.6. Because they have forsaken me. This is what God says. God is saying this. Because they have forsaken me and built the high places to Baal, Belial. Okay, that's 2 Corinthians 6.15, Judges 19.22. Belial in Baal is a, is a name for Satan. It is Satan. And Because they have forsaken me and built the high places to Baal, Belial to burn their infant sons, Leviticus 18.21, with fire for burnt offerings to Baal Belial, which I did not command, nor speak, nor did it come into my mind. And that's where we're at. That's where we were at last week, or last two weeks ago. And we're still here because it's so powerful and it's so important that you know that verse. And again, that's pretty much where we left off last lecture, number 201, August 27, 2023. Establishing that God had none of the evil witness, none of the evil wickedness of Jeremiah 19. He repudiates it. He's not involved. It's not in his mind. It did not come into his mind. He didn't command it, nor did he speak it. You see, that's now we have the problem. I hope you see the problem with the extreme Calvinism teaching that God is the origin, the author of all evil. Because if He is the origin and the author of all evil, He cannot say that which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. He can't say it. That would be a lie. He says it. Because he's not the origin. He's not the author of all evil. Because in order to be sovereign or omnipotent, that's what they say. They say he has to be 
the author of all evil, in order to be sovereign or omnipotent. He's therefore forced to cause, to predestine all things, including great, unimaginable, unthinkable evil. And he says no. He can't, again, let me repeat, he cannot say what he says here, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. He can't say that if he is the author of all evil, because that makes him the author of the evil of Jeremiah 19. So, remember when someone tells you that God is the source of all evil, remind them that Jesus Christ is God. And since Jesus Christ is God, then Jesus Christ is what? He's the source of all evil. And then he cannot be something now. What can he not be if he's the source of all evil? He can't be our Savior, you're correct about that, but he can't be the Passover Lamb of God, can he? Because the Passover Lamb of God has to have what? No blemish. No sin. We know the blemish is sin. We know the the blemish is evil. We know the blemish is wickedness. He cannot have any of that. He's inspected and found to be absolutely perfect. And he has to be absolutely perfect in order to be the Passover Lamb of God. Calvinism disqualifies Christ as the Lamb of God. Okay? Can't help it. They know it. They don't care. And, of course, now we have really difficult questions that begin here. Let me temporarily concede the ridiculousness of their hypothesis that Jesus Christ, by extension, is the author of all sin and evil and therefore disqualified to be the Lamb of God. Let me take that hypothesis that Christ has, has predestined all sin and evil and has therefore disqualified himself. When did Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you, when did Jesus Christ predestine sin and evil? When did God choose to have wickedness come into his mind? When did he do that? We have a timeline. What part of time? Before, what time did he say, I'm going to conceive all evil and I'm going to impart it and enforce it into the, my creation? When did he say that? Where did he say it? I'd like to know where he said it. Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the thoughts towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. I don't have any thoughts of evil. God's, thought are, God's thoughts are precious and the sum is great. His understanding is infinite. Psalm 139.17, Psalm 147.5. He will reveal the profound and, and, he will reveal the provo- profound and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells in him, Daniel 12.22. Does light dwell with darkness? No. Again, he's repeating himself over and over and over again. I did not speak it. I don't command it. I did not, it did not ever enter into my mind. I am the Passover Lamb of God. And of course, there's Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. God's thoughts are not man's thoughts, nor his ways man's way. He says, my thoughts are infinitely higher than your man's thoughts. That's what he says. And the Calvinistic position is, is we got a man's thought here, because John Calvin couldn't figure out how to reconcile this. Neither could Augustine a Hippo. So they said, well, this is what must be. And there's no evidence that it ever was, and there's no evidence that God ever did it. But that didn't bother, that didn't affect them at all. They went forward with their own thinking. And it's simpleism. It's very simple thinking. It's not complicated. It's not infinitely higher than our thoughts. It's lower than our thoughts, frankly. It's stupidity. I know I'm going to make some people mad, but that's what I do now that I'm old and infirmed and in my dotage. I'll make people mad for the rest of my life, probably. I submit that this supposed doctrine of absolute predestination is absolutely man's low thought. And I've said that before. Man's inability to reconcile God's omnipotence and omniscience and free will and existence. So man, Augustine of Hippo, thought of something that is stupid. That's what he did. Simplistic and insulting to the character of God. And John Calvin said, give me that. That's how it works. For today, be aware that God thinks. He says so. I have thoughts. Oh, that's interesting. He has infinite thoughts. That's even more interesting. So again, when did God think of the evil thoughts? Well, it's, your choices are never or always. You understand that? That's your thought. That's your position. 
if you have this ridiculous position. When did he decide that he must, notice the emphasis on must, he must predestine all things, including wickedness. I have to do it. And his, his, his rationalization, if you look, talk to the extreme Calvinist position, positioners, is that he has to do it because he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. And there's no way he can, he can reconcile his omnipotence with his predestinational influence. There's no, no possibility he could have given free will. He couldn't have done that. He must give wickedness. Because that's your choice. If you don't have free will, then he, he's the one that gave evil. So, so that's God's fault. Yes, exactly right. And of course you see that happen all the time. God's responsible for typhoons and he's responsible for hurricanes and he's responsible for murders and he's responsible for wars because he won't stop it. Well, absolutely they do. It's the same, same exact thing. God is outside of time. That's God being infinite. So when I say when did he do this, that's a time reference. And he's outside of time. That's why I said it's either always or never. That's your choice. He alone can gather all the information and all of the variables. You know, Kurt Gudel was excited about that. That's his incompleteness theorem. God's the only one that can get all the variables. He's got them all. Does John Calvin have all the variables? No. Does any Calvinist have all the variables? Does any Arminian have all the variables? No. Who has all the variables? God has it and God alone has it. And so, because he's infinite. He has all the possibilities and only he can know the mathematical truth. Infinity is a valuable asset. Duh. That's my little... When I get mad. Once God decides and God makes decisions, not only does he think, but he also decides things. Isn't that interesting? He isn't locked into something that you think he's locked into. This is a prison. You put God in a prison. Just like Einstein put put the speed of light in a prison. Once God decides and God does make decisions, Psalm seventy five seven, Revelation twenty, eleven through fifteen, Matthew twenty five, thirty three, he has done that with every piece of information and evidence that's possible. He has it all. And he's gone through it. And when you say, Well, he can't reconcile his omniscience with the gift of free will, then you're saying that he doesn't have all the variables. Because you're saying he can't do it. Still man. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14. Solomon. The conclusion of the matter. Solomon's final words of Ecclesiastes. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's God getting all the information. Jeremiah 17, 9, 10, Revelation 2, 23. Christ says, I, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. We said that in the last lecture. So does God, Jesus God, did he search his own heart? Does he test his own mind? Doesn't need to. Why not? Because he's perfect. He's sinless. He doesn't have to go into his own mind and look for evil because there's no evil there. So if he's searching your eye, your body and for the... The Calvinist has the position that evil originated in Jesus Christ. That's their position, whether they want to say it or not. That's their position. They don't know when he did it, but they don't know he did it. They're convinced of it because Augustine said so. So there they are in their little prison. So they have God searching himself for evil and wickedness. That makes no sense at all, does it? Does God, Jesus Christ, search his own heart, test his own mind? Might I suggest that this is evidence at Jeremiah 19.5. I did not command or speak, nor did it come in my mind. What he's revealing there is if I did search my mind and my heart, there would, I would find no evil. I don't have the evil of, of Hinnom. That extrapolates now. If he doesn't have that evil, evil, then what evil does he have? None of, none of the sins of the valley of Hinnom are in him. None of them. None of them are in the mind of God, which raises the mathematical element because there's always a mathematical element, right? Math is wonderful. I believe I asked last lecture number 201, August 27, 2023. Notice how I repeat that. Because as I get older, I have to make sure I do things. How much sin is in the earth and the heavens? How much? Get your bag and say, I'm going to go around and bag up all the sins. How big a bag do you need? How many sin is in the earth and in the heavens? 
Angels, Revelation 9, and mankind, Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Just go get that sin. How much sin is that? All of, my, all of mankind in Genesis 6, 5 through 7 was described by God. And it says his thoughts, man's thought, was only evil continually. That's all he had was evil continually. How much sin is that? How long did they live? Pre-flood. They lived a lot. So a thousand years, five hundred years of nothing but sin, sinful thoughts. No, only he says it plain, plain as he can. Only evil continually. He doesn't say sometimes there's some good thoughts. Doesn't. It's all evil. How many were on the earth at the time of Genesis six? Because you've got to gather all the evil now. It's a mathematical problem for you. Well, uh, uh, Henry Morris, who I greatly respect. He presented the evidence that mankind occupied the entire earth, just like he does now, except there's no oceans, right? Prior to the flood. And, and, and Morris calculated upwards of 7 billion. I think he, he ended up being 8 billion. And so, there, again, there's symmetry to consider. You always look for symmetry in the Bible. You always look for attachment to the Bible. How, what fits with what? How many on the earth before the tribulation? Because the tribulation is the same as the Noadic flood, right? There's symmetry between the Noadic flood and the tribulation. Both of them are times of judgment for the earth, right? Because what's the, what's the, what's the nature of man before the flood? Only evil continuously. What will be the nature of man after the flood? Mostly evil continually. Certainly that during the tribulation, there's going to be tremendous amounts of evil, angelic and human. There's tremendous amounts of evil now. So how many on the earth before the Noadic Flood? Who would be surprised if God could count? He's repeating the judgment. Did he repeat the number that, that has the experience of judgment? Just asking for a friend. I wish I had a friend. Anyway, how much sin is only continual evil sin? Thoughts of evil is evil, isn't it? If I'm thinking of evil, that's evil, isn't it? God said, if you think it, you've done it. So thoughts of evil is evil. Thoughts of evil is sin. How many thoughts of evil is only continually? How many thoughts is that? Go get them. Got to, got to get them all. Got to get all the variables. You're pretending to be God, so let's go get, let's act like it. And God knows evil and He sees evil. Proverbs 6, 12 through 19. Proverbs 15, 3. Hebrews 4, 13. The eyes of the Lord are in every place and no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom He, we must give account. Jeremiah 23:24 God asked, "Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can't see him?" Rhetorical question. The answer is no. Do I not fill heaven and earth? He fills heaven and earth. Declares the Lord, another rhetorical question. Okay? So where are we now? The far extreme Calvinistic, Calvinistic predestinational tenant has disqualified Christ as the Passover lamb slain. I think that's a big mistake. I think it's unjustified. I think it's undefensible. But that's what they've done. They've disqualified Christ as the Passover lamb slain and, and they have the great evil of Hinnom in the mind of God, even though he says that no. In direct opposition to what God definitively states from Jeremiah 19, 3-6, thus says the Lord, Behold, Therefore, behold, that be, I should jump up and down, but I can't. Now I'll fall down. I'll stand at my feet. This place is... That, those beholds are important doctrinal truths coming. And he says to them in Jeremiah 19, 3-6, Behold, here comes an incredible doctrinal truth. I don't speak it. I don't think it. I don't have it in my mind. I didn't command it. And, and to, to disregard that, may I suggest that to disregard that or to cast it aside, the spoken words of the Lord God Almighty, Creator of all things, that's skating on open water. There's no ice there at all. You're just in, you're trying to ice skate on water. Nothing frozen. Without blemish means what? What does it mean? It means no sin, not even a thought of sin. It's no blemish whatsoever. There's no thoughts of sin. Christ had no sinful thoughts has no sinful thoughts. He's never had any sinful thought. The blood of Christ cannot cleanse if the blood of Christ has sin in it. So what does that do? 
he is the author. If he's the author of sin, then he's thought sin. And if he's thought sin, he has sin. He's, then therefore he's not without blemish. He can't be the salvation. He can't be the, the Passover Lamb of God. And that line of thought, that terminates at withdrawing, eliminating even Christ's redemptive work. If they're right, there is no salvation if God is the source of evil. Because God can't be the Passover Lamb. Now, why would you want that? Knowing good from evil is not causation of evil. Seeing evil is likewise not causation. They can't figure that out. They don't have all the variables, but they think they do, and they want to have all the variables. They think they're convinced that they have all the arguments that are all prevail. They don't even look at anybody else's arguments at all. And typically, I believe it's blind obedience to the to the cult almost. To repeat, this is a mathematical issue. The Calvinist is in a position where he has to calculate the totality of all sin and then withdraw. He's got to subtract the evil of the Valley of Hinnom. Who can do this? It is impossible to do that. Therefore, the mathematical process is invalidated. Imagine assigning the most powerful of all mechanical computers to this task. What would they report? Calculate sin from the beginning of time, from the beginning of from the beginning of the angelic host. Calculate sin. What would they report? What would the computer do? It'd give you an error. It would say error. The concept is in error, not computable, is what it would say. And if it's not computable, then only the words of God are true. I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. If I can make it not computable for the inverse of that then I can, I can negate the inverse. And now I'm left with only the, with the words of God. The words of God are true. I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. And that, that extrapolates again to all evil. This Again, this statement from the mouth of God is thus applicable to all sin. There's a logical system here, and I won't, I won't just bury you in it, but you, you should be able to work it out. Basic logic theory. The singular solution then is that he has no sin, has never had any sin, no thought of sin, so do the math, use your phones, and that's where you'll come. Good luck, because it's non-computable. And by definition, there is no algorithm that can be conceived to solve the problem. The mathematical process runs forever without halting. It's called actually the halting condition. Always incomplete. It will always be erratic. It will always be unstable. When you try to do this. So if you put sin in God, you're going to have a halting condition. You're going to have a non-computable process. You're going to have, by definition, something that's incomplete. It's erratic. It's unstable. This is what's proposed to resolve the question of the predestined evil as having had its origin in God. Without, that's, how, that's where they end up. Without spending hours on the math, which I'd love to do, as you know, assigning predestined sin to God invokes non-computability. Instantly. Mathematically unsolvent, insolvent. So now I ask the obvious question. Is God unstable? Because if you're having predestining sin, you have a unstable, non-computable result, an error result. Malachi 3.6 tells you, for I am the Lord, I do not change. I'm completely stable at all times. So now you're trying to take stability from God by saying that he's the author of sin. If human and angels are eternal beings, and they are, we are, so are animals, and eternal beings are confined to eternity, how much sin will accrue while they're confined for eternity? Because where are the evil, where are the evil put? They're put in the lake of fire. Will, will sin cease in the lake of fire? No, what will we have there? We will have only evil continually, won't we? That's what we'll have. So how much evil is that when it goes on for all eternity? infinite evil. Does God know that? Yes, he does. Can he handle it? Yes, he can. He certainly can. No, it feels the opposite. So, will the, cease ever, will the sin ever cease? The answer is no. Therefore, God must predestine sin forever? That's the thing? Forever is a time reference. That makes it even more complex. 
Just saying. Anyway, the issue won't go away. We'll have to revisit it. Um, last lecture, we by we, I mean me, I left a considerable amount of material on the table, specifically, again, this hedge kiss sop cup. My suspicion is that the hedge kiss and the sop and the cup are intrinsically connected because I know I'm right because everything's intrinsic, intrinsically connected, so I'm right again. I can't not be wrong with that. The hedge is a non-fossil... The hedge is non-fossil... Non-falsifiable. It's a non-falsifiable concept. And, and it's intentionally such. Satan isn't stupid. Satan likely was the first to employ to exploit non-falsifiable concepts. I think he's the first one to do it because it's the first one I've ever seen. And I know when it happened, at least reasonably so. I know when the book of Job was written and here he comes. He comes with a non-falsifiable. Well, that's right. Non-falsifiable. Satan's lie incorporated the unseen, the intangible hedge. He said there's a hedge. Something that cannot be physically analyzed or experienced. It had no spatial extensionality. It's no location. It's got no weight. It's got no volume. It's not, not measurable. There's no measurable size. It doesn't displace anything. But it's there. That's what he said. Everyone was required to accept his existence based on Satan's what? Word. And what is he? That's Job 1.9. He's a liar. At Job 1.9. Because he's, he's the first to lie. If he's the first to lie, he's the first to come up with a non-falsifiable concept. The literal Hebrew reads, So answered Satan Yahweh and said, Does for nothing fear Job Elohim? That's the literal Hebrew. Notice that Satan is responding to God's three questions. Satan got three questions from God. The literal translation of Job 1.8, And said Yahweh to Satan, Have considered you upon my servant Job? Have you considered that there is none like him on the earth? A man blameless and upright, one who fears Elohim and shuns evil? Those are three questions. So he's saying, Job will shun you, Satan, because Satan is evil. And Satan accuses the Elohim, the us, the triune Godhead, Genesis 126, Genesis 3.22, of being afraid there. He said, you are afraid of something. You're having fear. Having the fear that something could cause Job to curse the Elohim to his face. And the fear of that, the salvific process, therefore is unfair, it's rigged. Because you've done this. you put a hedge around him because you're afraid. What are you afraid of? You're afraid that he will curse you. That means that he's saying that you've rigged the system. The hedge infers, infers that access to salvation is unjust. Satan then demands God to reach out and touch all that Job has. And this will result in Job cursing God. That's the logic that Satan has here. That's his proposition, his supposition. Simple questions. If Job were to curse God, would Job forfeit his salvation? If I had an Arminian in here, they would say, oh, absolutely, right? Is it possible for Job to jettison his salvation? No, it's not. Does Satan imply otherwise? Oh, yes, he does. Does God fear? If Satan said, you're afraid of something. Does God fear anything? No. Did Satan suggest that God feared something? Absolutely he did. Satan is suggesting the possibility that a blameless and upright man can hate God and that the, Elo and that the Elohim is afraid to point to the point that they have prevented this possibility. Let me say that better. He's saying that you're afraid that Job is going to curse you to his face so that you put a hedge around him so that he won't. So that is rigging the game. you got your thumb on the scale. That's absolutely the God of Calvinism, isn't it? The motive for predestination is the hedge. In other words, why do I put a hedge away from him? Because of predestination. If you want to think of it that way. In other words, God cannot allow free will because everyone will hate him, curse him. That's what Satan is saying. So therefore, you put a hedge up. You're afraid of that. Let's try another easy question. Note that easy is a relative term. 
Can a predestined Calvinist lose his predestined salvation by cursing and hating God? I want, inquiring minds want to know. So I'm a predestined Calvinist. Can I lose my predestined salvation by cursing and hating God? Because I'll tell you how many predestinational Calvinists have hated God. All of them. We all do it. We all curse God. You didn't give me what I want. I wanted a Mercedes Benz. Didn't get one. That's an old joke. You have to be old to know that joke. To put it another way, can God predestine a man for salvation and then additionally predestine the same man to lose his salvation? Because that's where you're at now. Is that amazing? Notice the absurdity. The super-deterministic Calvinism often begets nonsensical, ludicrous scenarios, as does the Armenian zealotry. They all do the same thing. They should join together and hold hands because they're throwing the same amount of food in this food fight. But for today, Satan demands that God remove the non-falsifiable, non-existent hedge. And God responds, how? He says, behold, oh, cool. When he says, behold, something amazing is about to happen. You, Satan, have permission. I'm giving you permission. Oh, my goodness. He gave him permission. What does that mean? He can give permission to Satan, but he can't give free will permission to anybody else, right? Is that your position? I will allow you to attack my servant Job, but spare his life, Job 1.12-2.6. There's a limit there. Why this limit? That's because of Matthew 10.28. Matthew 10.28 begins to answer that question, so look it up. Both Job 1.6 and Job 2.6 have this behold. And the beholds accompany a revealing of these great doctrinal truths. And, and someone notice the plural in this case. The first is that God proves there is no hedge. He, he refutes it by allowing Satan access. So we know that. Okay, go. If there's a hedge there, you'll bounce off. There wasn't no hedge. Satan claimed Job... Satan claimed Job 1.11 that there was no access, that only God himself could touch Job. That's why I said, you go touch him. And God responds, no, you touch him. Oops, Satan's trapped, isn't he? Because he's got to go. He's not, not got no choice. And if he doesn't bounce off, then what's happened? But spare his life. Why did God say spare his life? Again, who can kill, who can kill Job? Job is blameless, righteous, shuns evil, one of a kind. So obviously he's a type of Christ. So we have that typology being, being addressed here. Only God himself could touch Job, is what Satan said. And God refutes that, Job 1.12. Every angel, Job 1.6, fallen and faithful, witnessed Satan accepting the no-hedge position. He does. He has to. Think about why he does. If you don't figure it out, I'll be back on... Well, no, I'll be raptured on September 15th, but maybe not. I'll be back on September 24th. The non-falsifiable hedge theory was falsified. That's what he did. Next, Satan causes painful boils, great suffering from boils from the soles of Job's feet to the crown of his head. And this, that, now where are we? We're in the sixth plague. We've got to bring that to the arena, uh, Exodus 9, 8 through 12. The juxtapositioning of Pharaoh and Job now. Right, look at those two. Revelation 16.2, the first bold judgment of the seven bowls is boils on the mark of the beast. That's important. So the mark of the beast, you take the mark of the beast, it'll become an oozing, infected, putrid sore. Now, Job's wife concedes to all this. She says to Job, curse God and die. So Job or Satan won over the woman again. Job responds, Foolish woman, shall we not accept adversity? Now where am I in the Bible? I'm in Psalm ten six. Why am I in Psalm ten six? Because that's where Satan says something. What does he say in Psalm ten six? Satan said, I will never be in adversity. Job says, Shall we not accept adversity? So they're opposites. Job says, I will accept adversity. 
And Psalms follows Job. Remember, the answers to Job are in Psalms. They are, because you have the book of Job, and then what book do we have next? We have the book of Psalms, so I should look in Psalms for Job. And I find him right here for sure. Why did Job accept adversity? Because Job accepted the good. Psalms 133.2 translates the Hebrew word for good at Job 2.10 as the precious. I will accept adversity because I have, have I not accepted the precious? As does Isaiah 39.2. Lamentations 4.1 calls it the pure. That word. That would be, that would be Job saying, Foolish woman, shall we not accept adversity? Because we accept adversity if we, if we get the precious. We get the pure. Jeremiah 29.10 calls it the my good. Job, job. Job accepted the precious, the pure, the my good of God. What is that? What is the precious? What is the good? What is the my good of God, the pure? He took the adversity because he had accepted those. And in all of this, Job never cursed God. We live in a fallen, even, evil environment filled with adversity. If you have accepted this so great in a salvation, Hebrews 2.3, and Job did, all else is immaterial. That's the message. Job took the hit because he had the precious. The precious is what? Blood. Whose blood? The only one that's good's blood. The I am good. I am the good shepherd. That's Christ. Note the differences between Job and Satan. Satan insists his evil, his wickedness shall never be held to account. Psalm 10.13 He'll never have adversity on the basis that God has placed a hedge around those whom he has saved. That's, that's what Satan is saying in Psalm. God has indeed guaranteed our eternal salvation. The warranty is the shed blood of Christ. But this does not exempt us from this wicked world in which we reside. Uh, the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, aficionado is notwithstanding. You're in a mess. We're all in a mess. A sewage hole filled with evil. Okay. Now I kind of dealt with the hedge lie a little bit, sort of. I added a little bit more to it. Now we got to couple it with the kiss of Judas, right? Because Satan and Judas are together and Judas kisses Christ. we got to know why. we got to say to ourselves, if you want, I will say it, the kiss is connected to the hedge. Required disclaimer. Keep to the forefront that the hedge premise of Satan is multifaceted. It's a lot. I just gave you just a tiny little piece. Multiple tentacles going all over the place. And thus far we might have only acquired a perfunctory understanding. I hope we did. The rule of Scripture is that the simple explanation is always what? Wrong. Superficial. Keep digging. So the hedge and the Judas-Satan kiss, obviously these are linked in my opinion, and I am proposing that the sop and the cup are God's response to the hedge and the kiss. Another aspect to consider is the questions of the lake of fire. When did God create the lake of fire and the new city of Jerusalem? Did he do it concurrently? Did he do it at the same time? There's the lake of fire. There's the new city of Jerusalem. Matthew 25:41, Revelation 21:2. When did God reveal these to the angelic host? Because they saw him first. Is the lake of fire infinite or finite? That's my question. I'm, I'm, wow, I'm doing really good. Is the lake of fire infinite or finite? I definitely hold that the new city of Jerusalem is a seemingly finite structure that contains infinity. That's my position. Flat, flat torus. Much like the Bible. That's the way the Bible is. That's the way your Bible is. It looks like it's encased in leather, but it's not. It's infinite. Christ looks like he's encased in humanity, and he is. He has total humanity, but that's an infinite being in there, even as a baby, especially as a baby. So so a finite structure that contains infinity is much like the Bible itself and the humanity of Christ. Is the lake of fire similarly designed? Why is this applicatory? How does this fit? If I am correct, and the awarding of the honored sop is Christ preemptively addressing the Satan Judas kiss. He knows he's, they're going to kiss him. He knows everything. He's outside of time when he wants to be, inside of time when he wants to be, simultaneously outside of time and inside of time when he wants to be. So he has access to information. And I, I'm saying that the honored sop that Christ gives to Judas before Satan enters him, he's addressing this kiss that's coming. 
John 13, 26, Matthew 26, 47 through 56, Mark 14, 43 through 45. Things we know. The kiss, Luke 7, 45, 50 through 50, is attached to the woman who would not cease kissing Jesus. She wouldn't stop. Now, there's speculatory uh, uh, commentary that says who that woman is. They most say Mary Magdalene, but there's no evidence that's Mary Magdalene. Jesus says to her, Luke 7.48, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you, Luke 7.50. That's what he said. She won't stop kissing him. So he saves her. Okay? Do you suspect or do you, do you expect that Judas was there watching that? Absolutely. This woman's kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and won't stop. And he says, well, you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. Aha. Uh-huh. Do you think Judas saw the woman and heard Christ? Of course he did. And if you conclude that Judas witnessed this extraordinary event, then clearly Satan was informed, wouldn't you think? He says, Judas is the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, Luke 22.1-7, John 13.27, Revelation 13.3-4. We know that these two guys are together. These two beings. And Satan, ever since he heard Genesis 3.15, got his sentencing that he's cursed more than anything. He'd been anticipating and preparing for the seed of the woman to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent because that's what God said would happen. That's what Christ said was happening. Christ is a presiding judicial entity there in that, in that trial in Genesis 3.15. And, and Christ says to Satan, the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. And, and, and the seed of the serpent, I, I said that wrong, didn't I? The seed of the woman will bruise, will impart a fatal, mortal death blow to the head, head of the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. So the seed of the serpent gets to bruise the heel. Now Satan would pay attention to that. He'd have to one, figure out what it is. What does it mean to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman? Okay, so he's going to strike the heel of the seed of the woman. And he's been thinking all this, what, what he's going to do since Genesis 3.15 was revealed to him. Easy question. When was the bruising of the heel of Christ by the seed of Satan? When did, when did Satan bruise the heel of Christ? And note that Christ can be he, can be bruised. God can be bruised. So what, what does bruised mean? We can find the scripture. He can be hurt. What hurts him? I said this for generations, it seemed like. I said it many, many hundreds of times. How does Judas Satan, the Antichrist and Satan, because Judas and the Antichrist are the only ones ever, they're the same. Let's just stop it. How do they accomplish this bruising? Well, how many of you out there listening to me suspect that the sop and the kiss might be relevant to Genesis 3.15? Because it is. Oh, is that the end of my time? Okay. Okay, specifically the, the bruising of the heel of Christ. So the sop and the kiss are specifically referring to the bruising of the heel of Christ. How many of you think that's right? Don't raise your hands here ever, even in the video audiences. Don't ever do it. Something else to consider. Satan conceived and implemented the hedge premise and the act of the farewell delivery kiss. He did both of those. He's in charge of both of those. The kiss has at least two attributes. One, it delivers Christ to to a judicial process. That's what the word deliver means. That's why I'm so frustrated when it says betrayal, 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 betrayal. No, it's deliver, 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 deliver. Because they're delivering him to a judge. So the obvious question, for what crime? What crime did Christ commit? They say he committed a crime. He had to be tried. From Satan's perspective, God has committed a crime. Okay, where are we now? Oh, back to Job. And the hedge. Again, one, the the kiss delivers Christ to a judicial process. And to deliver Christ to a judicial process is to deliver him to judicial sentencing to determine if he is guilty or innocent. And the other aspect of the, of the kiss is a farewell act. You heard me say that many years ago as well. Judas is saying goodbye. Now remember that Judas Satan attempted to halt the crucifixion, something that never could be accomplished, Matthew 16, 23 through 23, lamb slain, right? Matthew 26, 5 through 9. And subsequently, Judas Satan counterfeit the crucifixion, Matthew 26, 5. That's what they're doing. They're producing a counterfeit. You're looking at this crucifixion. Come look at my hanging. 
There is no remorse here from Judas. There's no remorse. The word is is rendered regret as if he has been outmaneuvered. Judas and Satan misjudge the situation on all counts. Why, why shouldn't we expect that? But notice what they say. They say this fantastic thing. Judas is the one that speaks it, but Satan's inside of him. And you know it's a conspiracy. And this is what Judas says. I have sinned by delivering innocent blood for a judicial event that will condemn or exculpate him. And I added a few words. And yes, Christ is declared to have purified blood here. We have delivered an innocent blood, is what Judas says. Now look at what happens. I have sinned by delivering innocent blood. And yes, Christ there, right there is said by Satan to have sinless blood. Well, who's listening to this? Angels are. Now, I know Satan always lies. But the angels, nonetheless, would be shocked by that admission, wouldn't they? You're say, you're, Christ got Satan to say to him in front of the angels and in front of man that Christ is innocent, has no what? Blemish, has no what? Sin. He is not the author of sin. Oh my. Satan says it. Now people say, well, Satan's a liar. No, Satan's a, a liar, all right. But Christ out, outmaneuvered him here. And Satan misjudged it. He had to say that in order to get the crucifixion stopped. didn't work. That's proof that God has a sense of humor. So, the ones who arrest and deliver Christ to judicial condemnation announce that Jesus is fundamentally the fulfillment of the ashes of the red heifer. Okay? That typology. Those ashes proclaim that Christ is and has always been sinless. That's what the ashes of the red heifer does. If Christ is not presented, if he's not delivered to a judicial process as without defect, then there is no salvation, none are saved. His blood must not touch evil, which means God, Jesus, Jesus, God has never thought or conceived or declared, decreed evil, Jeremiah 19.5. To assert otherwise is to willfully destroy the typological portrait of the ashes of the red heifer. But they, again, doesn't bother him. Where am I? Satan had to know that kissing God was the equivalent of the forgiveness of sin. He had to know that. If I kiss God, I get my sins forgiven. The woman did. I'm doing it. Obviously, I'm sorry. Obviously, Jesus knew that Satan knew. When God asks a question, He knows the answer. Duh. Luke 22:48. Yes, Satan is delivering Christ with a kiss, announcing that Satan's evil must be discharged, pardoned. The hedge is invalidated. So instead, Christ gave the sop to Judas. He honors him. Why? Why does God give the honored sop to Judas? Doesn't he know that Judas is going to have Satan? Can he see Satan whirling around? Oh yeah, he can. Satan wants to get in here. But instead, Christ says, take the sop. Take the sop and it's the honored sop. Be honored. How can Judas be honored? Satan. He obviously, Christ gives the sop to Judas because of something. What does he give the sop to Judas for? Well, it's obvious. I think it's obvious. Because Judas has free will. He's not predestined to be condemned because there's no such condemnation. How so does Judas have free will? Can Judas reject Satan? Can he reject that entry? Christ gives him the sop. Does Christ know that Satan is on the precipice of entering Judas? Duh, yes. What is said by giving the honor to Judas? God in the flesh is announcing that Judas is worthy of honor. For what? For a decision. Was it possible for Judas to to choose to refuse Satan? Yes or no? Could he have done it? Notice that Satan enters after Judas takes the sop. Then Christ says, what you do, do quickly. Which is why Christ has great sorrow and he grieves at the cup of Gethsemane. The sop becomes related to the mark of the Antichrist. Once you take the sop, you're done. Don't take the sop. Take the mark of God instead. 
It is absolutely the grieving. God, God, God weeps. We know it. Christ weeps at Lazarus' tomb because there's a bunch of dead people that won't be saved. Yeah. Only one he called out was Lazarus. So anyway, the, the point to today, yay, a point today, is that this sop, and the mark, and the honor, and all of this ultimately will testify of the free will of Judas. And if G, Judas has free will, Revelation 14, 9, and 11, if Judas has free will, well, well, well. Does Satan know that Judas has free will? Yes, he does. So we have to ask the question. Judas has the sop in his hand. What's the obvious question? Does he eat the sop? Okay. Got to solve that next time. Okay, there we go. Got through it again. Didn't fall down. Thought about it a couple of times.